We are the ones, we are the ones we're waiting for. When I was a kid, I had dreams of becoming a teacher, a nurse, an anthropologist, pathologist for some odd reason, an astronaut, air hostess, a chef, a senator. I wanted to be on the Supreme Court. I wanted to be the president of the United States of America. I wanted to go into a rocket and go into space. Hi, everybody. Liam here. What you just heard is part of a sound collage that Ala Mostafa put together for the Hella Feminist exhibition currently running at the Oakland Museum. That show has a bunch of different elements, paintings, videos, uh, some very cool jumpsuits. But on today's episode, we'll be focusing on one particular part of Hella Feminist. When you walk into the main gallery, there's a giant wall covered with 200 portraits of local women and non-binary people, ranging from historical figures of the gold rush era to people who are still alive today. It's stunning. That wall is accompanied by a zine about these folks and uh, also the audio collage that you just heard a clip of. Local author and activist Kate Schatz did the writing for this project. And my guest today, Miriam Klein-Stahl, did the art. I've been a fan of Miriam's work for many years, so I knew she was pretty cool, but then I realized just how cool she was when I was at the Bikini Kill reunion show in Mosswood Park in Oakland a few months ago, and the singer of that band, the legendary Kathleen Hanna, gave Miriam a shout-out from the stage in the middle of their set. Bikini Kill, of course, was one of the driving forces behind the whole Riot Girl movement of the early 90s, which was uh, challenging patriarchy and rape culture and homophobia back when those things were going pretty unchecked by mainstream culture. So, yeah, Miriam has been fighting for uh, women's rights, for feminism, for decades. She's got some pretty serious street cred and local history is a big focus of her work. This is a really fun interview. I hope you'll stay tuned. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. Okay, so before we get into the the questions, I want to give listeners a little peek behind the curtain of East Bay Yesterday. So fans of this show are always telling me great ideas for people and topics I should cover, but I only do about like one episode a month. So I have this list that just keeps getting longer and longer. And so when I went to the Oakland Museum's new Hella Feminist exhibit and Miriam, I saw that you did this project that included portraits and little mini bios of hundreds of East Bay women and non-binary people, uh, many of whom are on my list of people I want to cover eventually. I was like, perfect. I can have you on to do a little sort of crash course on some of these folks, even though they they all deserve like a deep dive. Um, just <laughs> It'll be a while before I get to all of them. So I'm hoping we can cover some of the people you decided to uh, include in this exhibit. And um before we get started with all that, I'm wondering if you could sort of just introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about who you are and how you got into being an artist. Sure. Uh, I My name is Miriam Kleinstahl, and I live currently in Berkeley, California, and I grew up in the South Bay of Los Angeles. People may know San Pedro. And I came up to the Bay Area in 1989. I was living in Los Angeles and I was a queer kid in the, you know, mid eighties. And I just didn't see a life for myself in Los Angeles. And through Maximum Rock and Roll, a punk zine of the time, um, I saw an ad for a zine called Homocore and I ordered it and it came to my house in a brown paper bag in the mail and I opened it and I just couldn't believe that there was a such a thing as like punks that were queer. And I was like, I have to move to San Francisco immediately. And I did. And I found the queer punks and it totally opened up my world. I'd always been interested and involved in punk stuff in 
even, you know, as a teenager in LA helping put on shows, but I'm not a person that plays music. And I wanted to be part of this scene. And uh, when I moved to San Francisco, I knew that I like making things. I'd always use my hands. And so when I when I got to San Francisco, I got involved at in Epicenter, a nonprofit record store, and it had a switchboard for people to call up and find information. You'd answer an actual landline, and people would ask about food or housing or where a gig was or whatever it was. Um, it had a zine library. It was the first uh, bookshelves for a prisoner's literature project was there. There were AA meetings. There, there was um, mail order. Blacklist mail order was there to mail records and zines to people across the country. And this was all right before the internet. So it was a really important community space. And yeah, that was kind of my entryway into the Bay Area and finding my people, finding my community and knowing that what I wanted to contribute was visuals, making images for whatever was needed. Yeah. And flash forward about three decades or so. And here you are, you've got this amazing zine on your lap, um, a very professional <laughs> looking zine now, um, a little bit different than the old, you know, Xerox eight and a half by 11 folded over pieces of paper from, you know, back in uh, the punk days that a lot of people did. But uh, still, it's oh, funny you, you would say that because I look at this and see a total punk zine. I mean, it actually is that like 11 by 14 size that you fold over, but you need the longer stapler for. And and it was printed by a, a local punk guy. <laughs> well, I guess it is pretty punk in terms of its ethos and some of the aesthetics, but it's legible. So that's yeah. always nice. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of the punk scenes, not so much. Yeah. Um, but is there a name for this project? And, and can you tell me a little bit about how it came mm -hmm. to be and how it ended up on the walls in the Oakland Museum? Sure. Uh, I have made uh, children's books with Kate Schatz, who's a writer, and I'm an illustrator. And we had made a series of books, uh, the first one, Rad American Women A through Z, which was on um, City Lights. And it became a New York Times bestseller. It kind of blew up, which... Congratulations. Uh, That's pretty amazing. Thanks. And um, that allowed us to make three other books in that series. And um, and the, so, they're all kind of like radical history, w women's history. Yeah, the last yeah. one being rad American history, A to Z, yeah. which is about movements. We wanted to get away from just highlighting only people and really talk about movements and moments in history that were radical. So Kate and I had this kind of rapport of working together where I would make paper cuts by hand. So I start with a black piece of paper and I draw a portrait on it and then with a pencil, and then I use an X-Acto knife to cut it out. So it's very low tech. And I cut away the p parts that the negative space that are white and what's left is a black piece of paper, still all connected. Is it thing. like reverse stenciling or is it kind of similar um, to it's stenciling? It's exactly reverse stenciling. Okay. So <laughs> got it. yeah, cool. I'm cutting out the parts that spray paint won't go through. Got it, got it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Kate and I had this kind of style going where she would write and I would make the picture that goes with the writing. And um, so we'd been collaborating for many years and we were asked to be part of this Hella Feminist show at the Oakland Museum. And it's really always been a dream of mine to have work at the Oakland Museum. It's by far my favorite museum. Like their last shows that have been there have all been so great. And so one of the curators, Karen Adams, um, approached me about being in the show. And there were three curators that were all so wonderful to work with, um, Aaron Dita and Lisa and Karen. And we talked about doing a wall of my paper cuts. And Kate and I came up with the concept to call it work, just W-O-R-K, and have it focus on women and non-binary people in the East Bay that have contributed to make our lives better through their, their labor, through their work. So it kind of starts in 1800s and goes to teenagers. There's some teenagers in there that are living now. Um, so we were 
intentional about having people that are known and people that you might see at the grocery store at Berkeley Bowl. <laughs> and uh, that, that's been part of it that I really love is watching people look at the installation and like, oh, I know her, or I, they're my friend's friend, or whatever it is, you <laughs> oh. know, or s- seeing, you know, that's Erica Huggins, like, I, you know, she's a hero of mine, or whatever it may be. So the installation is 200 people on the wall, cut out in black paper cuts, and they're um, accompanying the wall installation is a zine, and uh, the museum printed 10,000 of them, and they're given out every day. A, a stack is put out. And then there's an audio piece. So Kate worked with a young woman, and she put together an audio piece of people that were local and living that wanted to come in and be interviewed. I didn't want to be, you know, another Latina who took care of other people's children and couldn't afford the quality care that I was giving other people's children. You're a woman, you're going to school of theology, and I'm not sure I can take communion from a woman. And I had to deal with that forever and ever and ever. This sort of uh, work and struggle that goes into being someone from Oakland who is trying to stay in Oakland. People say, you know, things have gotten so much better for women. They can work now, they can make money, um, they can have careers, they can be intellectually fulfilled. But most women also come home and have a full second shift of work to do. Uh, It's an audio piece of people talking about work. And you can pick up like a headphone and listen to it as you're looking at the exhibition. Let's get into some of the people that are actually in this zine, that are actually on the wall. And let's start with some of the more historical figures. So uh, we're not going to be able to get to all 200 of the women and non-binary people in this project, but I'm wondering if you could maybe explain, you know, a handful. Who are some of the people here that that the listeners of East Bay Yesterday should know about? I mean, first, I just need to say that I'm a fan of the pod, that I, I listened to East Bay Yesterday. I really love it. And whenever Liam does a show about one of the women that I've done a paper cut of, I always um, email it to him. I say, hey, I have a, I have a portrait of this person. So, Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, p- people can't see it, but I'm blushing right now. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, one, one of those people was Len Keller, mm. who you did a, a podcast about. Yeah, founder and... of the Bay Area Lesbian Archive. So I moved to California in 1975, landed in Santa Cruz. And was just completely blown out of the water because the community there was so vibrant. The dykes there were just, they were into everything. They were mechanics. They were uh, doing construction. I mean, it was during this time when women were really about, look, we could do these things. At least we're going to try to do things that we've always been told our whole lives that we can't do, not supposed to do, etc., so there were just all kinds of amazing things going on, and I was I'm very impressed. She's in the show, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a portrait of her, and that's one that, that I sent you, I believe. Yeah. It's hard to pick. Uh, I'm just looking through the zine. There's uh, Miss Major. Tell us about uh, Miss Major. Yeah, Miss Major uh, used to live right near here. She is a legend in the trans community, for really uh, bringing resources around healthcare and housing and um, visibility to trans rights. Just jumping in real quick to note that Miss Major Griffin Gracie was also involved in a lot of prisoner solidarity work and is currently running a retreat center for trans people in Arkansas called House of GG. Here's a short clip from an interview conducted in 2015 by the Trans Oral History Project that features Miss Major talking about her participation in the Stonewall Riot. Yeah, that Stonewall Riot. Miss Major was there. At the time, everybody was fighting to get their rights. The blacks wanted theirs. Women wanted their feminist rights done. You know, everybody wanted to be dealt with as human beings. You know what I mean? And so, just the gay culture was no different than anybody else. 
up until then, the police in every city rules the gay community bars and stuff. They go up to there and they take those nice sticks and hit the door jam. And you're supposed to step away from a partner of the same sex if you're dancing with them. If you're at a table, you're supposed to move apart and sit and be casually talking within so many feet away from each other. For whatever reason, I have no idea what that was. No one can tell you definitively, well, this is what it was and this is why it happened. There is no what it was, why it happened. It was just the right time and the right place. Because when they came to get us out of there, nobody moved. They started chanting, don't arrest the girls, don't arrest the girls. And something happened either, something like a boom. I don't know if it was a firecracker. They say someone threw a beer bottle. Someone else did, someone, one of the girls took her heel and broke one a play glass window. I don't know what the hell it was. All I know is that all of a sudden, everybody was fighting. Another one in there is um, Olivia Records Collective. And um, it's not that I'm a huge fan of um, women's folk music, but... You're more um, of a punk rocker. I'm more of a punk rocker. But, like, you know, they have such an incredible history of putting out music that means so much to so many people. And uh, and they were based in Oakland and, and Berkeley. Whether it's a love song or only lonely blues Woman, you know you've got to face the music Woman, you know you got to face the music Feeling your way through your fears and your fancies I was looking at archival photos of them and they were just so darn cool looking. So like the, the picture that I drew from has a woman like in a motorcycle helmet and another woman in like a softball uniform and and these derby caps and they just look so awesome from you know they were very active in the 70s well and i think that's something that isn't often recognized uh as much as it probably should be i think you know for example san francisco has this very high profile reputation as a gay mecca and there was this oscar-winning film about harvey milk and it's been, um, you know, very publicized as well as it should be. I mean, you know, San Francisco certainly deserves that reputation and it's something to be proud of. But the East Bay has been a hub of feminist and lesbian and queer organizing and women of color organizing for a long time. And I think that hasn't always gotten as high of a profile as, as it deserves. Can you talk about that a little yes, bit? Yes, totally. I mean, yeah, just glancing through here, you know, there's also Pat Parker, the poet who lived in Berkeley, who was like one of the most gorgeous poets, I think, of our time, uh, lived in Berkeley and was an out lesbian and, you know, really created a, a whole literary scene that gave space for people to speak about what they need to speak about. My lover is a woman, and when I hold her, feel her warmth, I feel good, feel safe. Then I never think of my family's voices, never hear my sisters say, bulldaggers, queers, funny, come see us, but don't bring your friends. It's okay with us, but don't tell mama, it'd break her heart. Never feel my father turn in his grave, never hear my mother cry, Lord, what kind of child is this? She and Audre Lorde also, you know, really figured out ways to pay poets. Um, And I mean, I just want to like emphasize this because I know I have a lot of young listeners. Shout out to the to the kids who found out about East Bay yesterday through Instagram. Yeah. Like, I love you guys. But I think for, you know, people who are younger, it might be easy to take for granted that, okay, a black lesbian poet who's publishing work, that's not uncommon these days. But in Pat Parker's era, I mean, there was not a lot of people or if anyone doing it at her level with her yeah. identity. I mean, she's well, really June breaking Jordan through these barriers. Also, who's also in, in the scene. Yeah, t- t- tell, who, tell us who Ju- June Jordan was. June Jordan also um, was the founder of Poetry for the People, which is still a strong program at uh, UC Berkeley, now run by another person in the show, Aya DeLeon, who's the daughter of Ana DeLeon, who had jazz clubs in in Berkeley, and um, Aya's keeping poetry for the people going, making poetry 
accessible in our schools and really supporting young poets of color. Yeah, that's that's another cool thing to see in, in the zine is all the different sort of intergenerational connections. I just bumped into Cheryl Fabio at an event a couple days ago, and her mom was Sarah Webster Fabio, who was, I've talked about earlier in earlier episodes of this show, but was this sort of um, figurehead in the black arts movement in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. as a writer. And now uh, her daughter Cheryl is, and among many other things, this great filmmaker who did this incredible documentary about uh, Oakland blues history that came out a couple of years ago. Yes, and there's Cheryl Fabio right there. <laughs> and, the, and you know who, I, when I bumped into Cheryl, it was at this media event and she was there with her granddaughter and she was like teaching her granddaughter like how to make documentaries so keeping it going filmmaker Mm -hmm. her family business her quote in here is for me a freedom fighter doesn't have to be this huge thing we hear about in history books fighting for freedom can be a big act it can be a small act it's a consistent act yeah absolutely the zine also just has quotes by people. It's very it's cool. <laughs> and so I before I was asking it's, if you could... Oh, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Speaking of poets, yeah, I mean, here's one of my favorite poets on the same page here, Chinaka Hodge, who is, I think, one of the best writers of our time and came from these streets of Oakland and is now writing a Marvel TV series. Let us stop waiting on freedom like it's the whooping cough. Stop hoping freedom is going to court us on a Thursday date night. Quit crossing our legs and biting our time and biting our nails. It's our birthright, and they will lie to us and tell us we are violent for wanting peace. Peace is our dowry. We wed to a democracy that keeps taking off its ring. We married to a decadent system that mocks squalor and honor. We saw what they do to our leaders. I was going to say, not just a poet, kind of a big-time screenwriter right now. And And, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and also playwright. She's written incredible plays. Definitely. And um, I think that's one of the really cool things about this project being at the Oakland Museum is that there's sort of like these cliche terms that people toss around, like building community and engaging the audience. But the Oakland Museum actually really does that. And it doesn't come across as sort of trite or forced. And it is exciting for people to go to a museum and see people they might know or recognize or bump into. And like, I'm sorry if this is going to sound too like name droppy or whatever, but like I went to your show and I'd never, never met um, the pioneering black lesbian director, Cheryl Dunyer before. And then two nights later, I like kind of randomly ended up at a party at her house. And I'm like, whoa, I just saw you on the wall of a museum and we were talking and then a karaoke party broke out at this house party and who walks in through the door but Shanaka Hodges' dad, Craig Hodges, who like lives across the street who just like heard the karaoke party going and was like, I'm going to drop in and say what's up. And so like, yeah, it's like fun. Running for mayor. Yeah, and he's running for mayor now too, exactly. So just to feel like people uh, that you might see at a protest or a karaoke party or like you said at Berkeley Bowl are worthy of being included in a a really cool museum exhibit. I think, you know, the fact that that, that's happening in Oakland is is really inspirational. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at this page, just like shout out also to Karina Gould. And they, I think that she also was involved in in putting some work in the museum around the work of of the land trust, um, Segurite Land Mm -hmm. Trust. Absolutely. Incredible project. Absolutely. So I actually went through and did a little tally of the women in this zine who I've done full East Bay Yesterday episodes about. So just to the listeners who want to have like a deep dive about any of these people uh, and get sort of like a more full story of their lives, um, I've done episodes about Karina Gould, co-founder of Segorte Land Trust, Delilah Beasley, pioneering black journalist and historian, Dorothea Lang. Uh, famous photographer Erica Hoggins, who was a Black Panther who ran the Oakland Community School. Ina Coolbreath, very first episode, uh, California Poet Laureate, and also Cal- uh, Oakland's first librarian. Janelle Hessig, aka Janelle Blarg, awesome cartoonist and just punk rocker, rad person. She's in the episode with Brontes. Purnell Julia Morgan, that my most recent episode is about her, legendary architect. We already mentioned Len Keller, Ruth Beckford, who was the uh, known as the dance lady because she was a pioneering Afro-Haitian and modern dancer, but also co-founder of the Black Panthers, 
school breakfast program. Yeah, can I say something yeah, about that? Yeah, of course. You know, when, when we were doing research for this show and, and we wanted to include Ruth Beckford because of what she brought to the dance world in, in Oakland, um, bringing West African dance. And so we were researching and found this article in the SF Chronicle. It was after she died. So it's this long article about all the things she's done. And then the last like two sentences is like, and by the way, she, it was her idea to make the free breakfast program for the Black Panther Party. And so like, you're reading all of these accomplishments and then it's just like keeps hitting you with like how incredible yeah, she was. So. That's quite a footnote yeah. that this thing she started uh, was actually the reason why J, uh, J. Edgar Hoover called the Black Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States yeah. because he saw the um, threat of the Black Panthers feeding hungry school children as a bigger sort of concern, you know, for the stability of the United States and the fact that they had guns. I mean, he was really concerned about the social programs and sort of winning over the, the hearts and minds of people more than actual violence. Yeah. And, and the lasting legacy. I, I, I'm yeah. in my 28th year teaching public school in Berkeley and the free breakfast program is still in place from that time and feeding many kids. The Black Panthers met at my church, St. Augustine's Episcopal Church, and Father, the Reverend Father Earl Neal was considered the spiritual advisor for the Panthers. It was at that church that the Panthers' free breakfast program originated with Father Neal, Bobby Seal, and I. Every morning at 6 o'clock, I went to the PTA at Durant School, which is two blocks from my church, and got recruits of parents to come and assist with this. And I went to a nutritionist and got her to donate how to do menus so that every Monday was this, every Tuesday was this, every Wednesday was this. So the kids got a real variety of, of nourishment. And uh, everything was volunteer. I would go, every day I'd go with my begging bowl and get stuff donated. And at 6 o'clock every morning at St. Augustine's Church, in the downstairs kitchen, we would cook breakfast at 6 o'clock and serve about 100 kids every morning and get them served and out of there into school. And the principal came and said, you don't know what this program has done. Our kids are not falling asleep. They're not crying with stomach pains and all this stuff. So he could see the change with kids leaving with a good hot breakfast under their belt. Finally, the last two people I wanted to mention who I've done episodes about that are in your awesome zine are the legendary blues singer, Sugar Pie DeSanto, one of the coolest people I've ever interviewed in my life, total badass, and of course, Betty Reed Soskin, who is uh, also one of these people that's done like a million things. Her resume goes on for about a mile. She's probably best known now as the oldest national park ranger in America, although she just retired. She's 100 years old, but um, I did want to mention that uh, her voice will be in included in an upcoming walking tour that I'm developing for the city of Richmond. So awesome. stay tuned for more details on that. Just real quick, I should clarify, I'm not doing that Richmond tour by myself. There are a bunch of other individuals and organizations involved, and uh, it's not just a walking tour either. But like I said, it's still a work in progress. So I can't really say anything else about it just yet, except that when it does come out, it's going to be awesome. We've been talking a little bit about some of the more kind of like historical figures in, in the zine, in the exhibit. What about some other sort of like current younger people that you want to include? Like, how did you choose them? And what does like someone who's a teenager or in their 20s or 30s say when you approach them to say, hey, I want to put you in a museum exhibit? <laughs> well, you know, one of my former students is in it, um, or actually a couple of them, because I'm a high school art teacher, so uh -huh. I'm at this point. I've taught thousands and thousands of youth who are off doing incredible things now. And a couple of my students these last few years have lived through some really hard times, like all of us on Earth right now. Um, you know, making it through this pen these pandemic times. And right before we went into shelter in place, there were a couple uh, things that happened at the high school, one was around sexual harm. There was a big walkout, and 
I had some students organize organize the walkout and wanted to educate other students around sexual harm and how to step up and be an ally. And, and I just often step back and just think how incredible young people are and at organizing and um, making change in our world as, as they always have been from, you know, the history of radical politics. There's always young people at the center. And so I wanted to um, just highlight some of, some of the youth that are doing the work. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, speaking... So I'll, just, I'll just name them. Oh, please. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so one of them, their name is Anna Jacob, and another one um, is Tacey, who's also a drag queen. And so I, I have a portrait of her in drag, which I really love. That's awesome. And speaking of your career at Berkeley High... People who might not even known they've seen your artwork probably have if they've ever walked around this sort of civic center area of downtown Berkeley because you've got these um, public art installations painted on utility boxes and things like that that are also connected to local history. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that project entails and, and how that came to be and, and who's featured in it? Yeah, that's actually a, a project I led of students that did the art for it and it's um, Berkeley High alum and it, the Earth Island Institute asked to partner with us to do these like wraps of these utility boxes to get public art around the school. So they really let us come up with the concept and speaking with students, they wanted to highlight people that had gone to Berkeley High that have done interesting things. So there's a lot of them. So there's uh, Josh Redman, the um, jazz musician, um, the Lonely Island comedy crew, um, Chinaka Hodge is on there, and Phil Lesh. That's the box that's all um, performers. So there, there's a box of all writers. So there's Thornton Wilder, um, who wrote Our Town. Um, there's Philip K. Dick, who is a science fiction writer, and then the most brilliant science fiction writer, or one of them, Ursula K. Le Guin, who went to Berkeley High, and then the fourth writer is Ariel Schrag, who is a comic book artist and writes for television. And then there's another box that has activists, and that box has Bobby Seale, who went to Berkeley High, and the I love the Bobby Seale portrait because He's facing MLK, which was the red line in Berkeley. So he's kind of looking at where uh, black families could only own houses below MLK in that part of Berkeley. And I love that he's just looking at, at the yeah. street right there. I mean, and the Black Panthers were organizing at Merritt College back when it was on MLK, mm -hmm. uh, right by the Oakland-Berkeley border there, just, you know, a mile or so up the road. So. Yeah, that's right. Lots of local connections. And then uh, someone near and dear to me, Gene Wang, who uh, who's died a couple years ago and was a mentor of mine and worked in organizing parents in Oakland public schools and was a real leader in educational reform. And then there's another person on the box, and it's my only regret with this project. I wish we put Glenn Burke, who went to Berkeley High also, and was um, maybe the first out professional baseball player um, who's from Oakland and went to Berkeley High. And also um, possibly the inventor of the high five. Possibly the inventor of the high five. It, that is the lore. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I hear when when he when he gave a high five, everyone's like, "Oh my God, what was that?" Mind blowing and moment we in all, sports history. Now we yes. all high five. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but instead, we put um, this other uh, old geezer in baseball who was turns out to be kind of a racist asshole. So I'm not even going to say his name, okay. but yeah. he's up there. And, and maybe one of these days I'll just make a Glenn Burt illustration and, and just glue it over. I should. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, public art is meant to evolve, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and that was put up in two, 2012. It's kind of falling apart now. So it, maybe it'll be redone with all new alumni. 
Well, also, it's just amazing to note how many accomplished people have come out of Berkeley High. I that's mean, right. that's quite a, quite a list, and that's yeah. just even scratching the surface. I mean, I know mm-hmm. there were so many others, but uh, yeah. a lot of talent there. Um, and speaking of your public art projects, another project you did quite a while ago, I think this was about a decade ago, maybe more, was a series of tile mosaics along Castro Valley Boulevard. Oh, right. So uh, that one featured like a lot of images of native plants and local landmarks that was installed on like stone benches and like one thing that I'm wondering about is like for public art projects like that the ones that are meant to last a long time I mean this was made literally in stone so Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know hopefully that's going to be around for a while it will outlive us for sure yeah and I'm wondering like you know these things debut and they make a splash and there's coverage of them and people are like oh this is cool and they notice it but then sometimes public art can sort of fade in the background or just become part of the landscape and some people, like, whenever I notice something, like, I'm a history nerd, so I'll go down the rabbit hole, I'll try to figure out who are these people on this mural, what are these native plants supposed to represent, and I feel like there's probably, you know, lots of people like that out there, and so, you know, for every hundred people that walk by and maybe don't notice anything, even if you just catch one person's attention and impact them in some way, um, you never know what's going to come of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, over the years, since you've done, you know, that project or other public art projects, what kind of feedback have you gotten from people or what kind of impact do you think it might be making on the world? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love public art personally. I just think that um, for me, I like to respond to a community and really make something that a community can feel proud of. And um, maybe if you're having a crap day, you're walking by and you see something and it can bring a little joy. I mean, that that's the ideal that for that project and a project I just did for Ashland, also right near Castro Valley, an unincorporated part of Alameda County, um, their projects with the Alameda County Arts Commission, and a lot of places, um, cities and counties have a percentage for the art. So when there's a big streetscape redo usually like 1% of the budget goes to public art. And then there's an open call and you're asked to apply or you apply. And then community members come in and they look at the work and pick one out of like five proposals. Mm -hmm. And so another thing I love about it is that it's very democratic in that way, that it's not just like some rich person saying, I'm hiring you to like make this artwork that I want. Um, or I, you know, or it's not like advertising, like trying to like push some sort of idea on you. It's, you know, it goes through a committee of people that, um, is hopefully diverse and represents the community and then has to be approved by a city council. And so there's a whole process to it, which a lot of artists really don't like, but it's something that I really do like. Mm. And maybe because I've like worked in public education for a long time, I have a tolerance for bureaucracy. Um, But I feel like it's art for the people, by the people. And so I I am a big fan of being a maker of public art and also appreciating other people's public art pieces. Absolutely. And, and, And I believe that there should be this percentage for art that developers shouldn't get away with making these big, ugly projects in our towns and not giving money towards the arts. I think any sort of big development that happens should also have a percentage for the arts attached to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm currently reading a biography of the famous critic John Berger, who I think probably, if people have heard his name, they're probably most familiar with this series that he did for the BBC in the uh, early 1970s called Ways of Seeing. It's on YouTube, if you haven't seen it. It's Mm -hmm. extremely worth checking out. And the part of the book that I'm reading now is sort of about the post-war, Cold War era of England. And there are these kind of massive public intellectual debates between art critics. And the, the core question that they're kind of fighting over is this issue of does art need to have a a social purpose for it to be valuable? Like, in other words, is it okay for art to simply be an individualist 
practice or something aesthetically pleasing to look at, or should it serve some kind of like liberatory goal? Uh, Berger was a Marxist, and so he thought the goal of art, all art, should be to improve society. Uh, but you know, his opponents, people who who were vociferously opposed to him, thought that that was a dangerous perspective because it can lead to just art being essentially just a fancy word for propaganda, right? And so you've done a lot of political art, you've done a lot of public art, and I'm sort of wondering how you approach that question of sort of like the purpose of art. I I definitely have two minds about that. So one is that you when I use my hands, I can go into this different part of my brain and this different part of being where like I feel my heartbeat slow down and I calm myself. So it's been some stressful years, the Trump years that we came through and COVID. And I found that I needed to go to the studio every day, which is in my backyard, (laughs) and do something with my hands. And it brings me complete peace to be able to do that. And I know that listeners out there have other other things that they do that bring them that that kind of peace of mind calming down in the body whether it be cooking gardening playing music (laughs) um for me it's making art with my hands so I'm always going to do that and not everyone needs to see those things that I do I also believe like the Marxist <laughs> um, thinker that you were just quoting, that that the purpose of art has a politic to it as well. And I want to make work that up, uplifts people and makes people think and brings radical politics into, into the mainstream. And a, a big influence on my work is uh, Emory Douglas, who was the... Uh, Minister of uh, Information, Minister of Culture, yeah, Yeah. Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party. And I heard him speak once and he said that he's a movement artist and he only makes art when it's needed. And so I've I've taken inspiration from Emory and whenever I'm asked to do something for a cause I believe in, or a political group, or a nonprofit, I always say yes, because I believe in it. And I also get a salary as a school teacher, so I don't need to always take projects that pay me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So at the beginning of this conversation, we were discussing how you sort of got your start through the through the punk world. And uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that I, I came from a similar pedigree. I started doing uh, punk zines in Chicago in the mid '90s, and interviewing local punk bands, kids that were basically my age, like in the back of the Fireside Bowl, which was uh, you know this legendary punk venue on Fullerton Street in Chicago. And so, kind of taking it back to both of our roots here, what are some of your favorite old school East Bay punk bands and zines for people who might not have been there? That if they should go back and check it out, or even if you just want to give some shout outs to like some old bands and zines that you know deserve some recognition after all these years. Well, Crimp Shrine, I love, uh, and Aaron Comet Bus is the drummer of that band and also did a, or still does a zine called Comet Bus, so I would definitely read Comet Bus and listen to Crimp Shrine. Yeah, definitely, and Aaron, if you're listening, I'd love to interview you sometime. <laughs> I know he's kind of hard to get a hold of, so we'll see if that works. Um, you know, and also just shout out to Janelle Blarg. I mean, I, I probably a couple times a year look through my old Blargs just to have a laugh. Like if I'm having a shit day and I want to laugh, I'll read one of Janelle's stories or look at one of her comics because I think no one can spin a tale like Janelle. Yeah, no, she's she's so great, and um, I'm very excited to see uh, her still doing her illustration work. Oh, and speaking of illustrators, uh, one of the other women that you include in the zine, who um, I haven't done an episode about yet, but I really want to, is Jessica Mitford, whose story is like incredible. I won't even get into it right now, because she's just one of those people that has lived such a 
mind-blowingly interesting life. But I just found out that Mimi Pond, who did these incredible graphic novels about working at Mama's Cafe on Broadway in the 70s and early 80s when she was an art student in Oakland, Mimi Pond is doing a new graphic novel about Jessica Mitford that's supposed to be out next year. So that'll be like the hook for me to finally do the Jessica Mitford episode, hopefully. Awesome. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then just getting back to the East Bay punk situation, uh, something I just realized is that you have uh, a punk singer and a uh, queer skateboarder in the zine, Cher Strawberry, and I just happen to be wearing a shirt for a band called Twomp Sacks, which Cher is, I believe, the singer and... I'm trying to remember. I've seen Twom Sacks a couple of times. I can't remember if Cher plays an instrument or not. I just remember Sings. them jumping around, singing, yeah. being very acrobatic on stage. And uh, they're, they're super fun to see, too. So old school punk, new school punk. It's all good. Last question. You've done so much research on East Bay history, feminist history, red women. So now I'm asking you for advice. Who else should I cover on East Bay yesterday that I haven't that I haven't got to yet? <laughs> wow. Uh, who would I want to hear more from? Sure. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, my wife, Lena Wolf, she is a artist and activist. She does more abstract kind of work based on American uh, quilt making and patterns and and really the work the work of women's hands and makes beautiful artwork abstract artwork but she also is a political organizer and she and I uh, have solidarity Sundays at our house once a month uh, which is a group of people that come over and write postcards and make phone calls to our elected officials around all of the fucking shit that is <laughs> that 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 we think, you know, we think our government can do better than it's doing and so we agitate on the street but we also write postcards and 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 call our representatives and so uh diversity of tactics diversity of tactics and she also uh, works really hard, and she's at home right now sending 30,000 posters around the country to swing states um, encouraging people to vote. So she worked with a designer to make these like absolutely gorgeous vote posters, which are also in Hella Feminist. One says, vote for reproductive rights, and one says, um, vote for trans rights both things being attacked um, through legislation across the country. And uh, we really want to make sure people get out there and, and vote so that we uh, don't lose the House and the Senate to people that hate us and want to see us suffer. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that and also slide into total fascism. Um, and on that yeah, exactly note, that. on that note, um, <laughs> where should people go if they want to see more of your work besides just going to the, the Hella Feminist show at the Oakland Museum? You can go to the library and, and uh, get one of our books or go to a local independent bookseller. And uh, one thing I love about making books is, you know, they're all under 20 bucks and you can buy a book and have hundreds of pieces of art for that or go to your local library support your library and check it out and get it for free well miriam it's been such such a fun conversation today I, i'm so glad you came over really appreciate you talking to me yeah thank you for having me on a longtime listener happy to be on the show <laughs> very cool all right that's gonna do it Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Before I get to the credits, I just wanted to thank everyone who got tickets to my Bygone Berkeley event at Shotgun Players Theatre uh, that's happening in a few weeks. That event actually sold out super fast, so we're working on adding another date or maybe two. Uh, once we figure it out, I'll be announcing the uh, new dates in my newsletter. You can sign up for that and find my social media links at East Bay 
yesterday.com. Other than that, I've got a few more other really good events coming up uh, that I'm super excited about. This Saturday, September 10th, I'll be at the History Fair hosted by the Cameron Stanford House on the beautiful shores of Lake Merritt. I'll be hanging out, selling long-lost Oakland posters, catching up with my friends from the Emeryville Historical Society, Commons Archive, the Black Panther, Alumni Network, the Cohen Bray House, Berkeley Historical Society, Oakland Heritage Alliance, West Oakland Cultural Action Network, and uh, a bunch of other groups. Uh, that's free with the library card, so come through. And speaking of the library, on October 2nd, I'll be doing a live interview at the Oakland Main Library Branch with New York Times bestselling author Julia Shears and uh, also award-winning journalist Allison Gilbert about their new book, it's called Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. Elsie uh, Robinson started as a uh, Oakland Tribune columnist, I believe, way back in the day. That conversation is going to take us way back to the roaring 20s era of the Bay Area. Should be a fun talk. What else? Uh, I'm doing an event at the New Parkway. Um, it's going to be a documentary about the trial of Huey Newton, and um, I will be in conversation after that screening with uh, some of the filmmakers, Huey Newton's brother, Melvin Newton, the civil rights lawyer, John Burris, uh, maybe some other people. That's going to be big. Um, tickets are on sale right now at the New Parkway. That's mid-October. And um, yeah, like I said, you can find all that at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. And if you really want to show me some love, sign up for my Patreon while you're there. A huge shout out to all my supporters out there. You guys are keeping the show alive. So many thank yous for this episode. Thanks to everyone at the Oakland Museum who made this exhibition happen, the curators, the communications people, uh, even my friend Maeve, who is the groundskeeper over at the Oakland Museum of California. Uh, she's keeping the garden looking lovely. Uh, who else? Uh, shout out to everyone whose voices and music you heard this episode. Uh, that would include Miss Major, Meg Christian from Olivia Records, uh, Pat Parker, Chinaka Hodge, Ruth Beckford, Crimp Shrine, Twomp Sacks, and Len Keller. Sadly, Len passed away about two years ago, but the Bay Area Lesbian Archives is still going strong. You can find out what they're up to on their Facebook page, and uh, if you if you want to know more about Len, you can also read the uh, obituary that I wrote for the great Len Keller on Oakland side after she passed away. And uh, that's about it. Um, I will be back soon with more stories of East Bay yesterday. Thanks again for listening.